And our second reading comes from the Holy Gospel according to St. John. It's found in the 12th chapter and begins at the 20th verse. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it, and those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will be my servant also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God indeed. Well, you may have noticed, how am I doing here? There we are. You may have noticed that uh, there's a difference among pe- preachers. Some of us are taller and some of us, whoop, I forgot. The youngsters have a special activity in the back. If they would like to go, they are welcome to. They're already on their way. They're smarter than me by a lot. And as, as I was saying, some, some preachers are taller and some are shorter. Some have beards. Some used to have beards. Didn't tell you that, did I? Didn't look very good. But we have, as it would be understandable, different styles as well. You know, I, I can never be Pastor Jerry. I can never be Pastor Bruce. I cannot be Pastor Carol or any other pastor you've ever enjoyed in your life. I can't be. I'm not them. And they are not one another. And so our sermons vary. Even from week to week sometimes. Some sermons are absolutely marvelous. They're great. They touch your soul. You, you, feel, you leave feeling something has changed within you. And other sermons... They just sort of fall flat. Some sermons do both. If you've ever discussed a sermon with your spouse on the way from this place, you might find out you both got a different impression of that word. And that's the work of the Holy Spirit. Sometimes it conveys more than one meaning. Some preachers use a block of time to preach deeply on a theme, or they offer a series over a period of weeks to focus on a large section of scripture. And and that's what our pastor Jerry has done over this past month. Some pastors use their time in the pulpit to educate all of us on the essentials of the Christian faith and the Christian life. And they encourage us to more faithful living within those parameters. And that's what our pastor Bruce has been doing as he leaves us a spoken legacy in these last weeks before his coming retirement in December. Now I'm a little weird in this day and age. I'm one of those preachers who has fallen in love with something called the lectionary. It's an old-fashioned churchy word, but the lectionary is just a series of lessons that was come up with, oh, decades ago. It's a three-year cycle, and these are the lessons that go, and this is the order they go in, over and over and over again in that three-year cycle. But as boring as that may sound, I've, I've found that it's been absolutely amazing to see how often those lessons are assigned for a given week and on that very same week that's exactly the lesson that was needed because of something that happened in the community or happened in the world. 
So many times that has occurred. And so today, I'm going to step way out of my comfort zone. We're not going to do the lectionary lessons this day. Instead, I'm going to preach about something else. I'm going to preach about something that most people sitting in chairs like the ones you're sitting in today find absolutely boring. Yeah, I can hear it. Woo, boring. I have, I'm going to say something today about the Lutheran liturgy. You know what liturgy is. It's the ordinary, or the order, excuse me, of things that we do and say through the course of our time in worship in this room. Whether we come on Saturday or we come on Sunday, whether we come to a so-called contemporary service or a very traditional one, the liturgy is the liturgy. It's the order in which we do things. In particular, I'd like to focus on something called confession and forgiveness. I could just hear you saying in your minds right now, Oh, good. Confession. Woohoo. Yeah. Yay. Not this, Pastor, please. We just did that. And I can hear your minds working too, as, as nice as they are. If these chairs were a little bit more comfortable, you could catch up on your nap time right about now. Because, well, I warned you the subject matter was considered by many to be boring. And so I get it. And I, I understand boring in the church, things we do repetitively over and over again until it becomes stupefying. So here's a video I thought might eh, sort of show you what people in the pews look like when we go through confession and forgiveness week after week. Some of you recognize that. If you're of a certain age, you may have even grown up with that. Oh, maybe the sound of that chant brings back memories from a deep, dark past. If you don't know this, it comes from a movie entitled Monty Python and the Holy Grail. This movie tried, tried to go out into American theaters in 1975. That dates some of us, but others of us have been streaming it more recently, I guess. I said it tried to go out in many places because in, in places like my hometown in South Florida and many others, this film was banned. It was seen as, seen as heretical. It was seen that way because it mocked the Christian church. 
Now, I don't bring this movie clip to you this morning to shock you with anti-church imagery. That's not the point. Instead, I bring this to you because, as you very likely heard, good comedy has an underpinning, a foundation of truth within it. The chant that you heard is certainly truth. What they're saying, although presented in Latin, is roughly, please, Lord Jesus, grant them rest. And it's being offered in a portion of the, of the movie where people are dying of the plague. Yes, a comedy movie where people are dying of the plague. At the same time, did you notice the banner that was following the monks as it walked around with this monotonous chant? Anybody notice what it said? There's a reason for that. Didn't say a thing. It was a pure blank piece of burlap. It was as blank as the look on those men's faces as they marched through the town. There is no emotion displayed at all by the men or by the message they carry on the banner. Their whole act of parading around the town square, much like that messageless banner, is monotonous and it's meaningless. Now, we don't hit ourselves in the forehead with cross-emblazoned boards, as you saw. But let's be honest, Lutherans do look and act rather like that python troop when it comes to our time of confession and forgiveness. We, we do the same thing over and over and over again, and we scarcely notice what we say and what we hear. How did we come to this monotonous place in our worship? What's the history of, of getting here from there? Well, here's something. Anybody, anybody recognize this? Not many. Oh, there's, a, there's one nod. Maybe a hand. Yeah. This was our hymnal once upon a time. Its, called, its name was the Service Book and Hymnal. It guided Lutheran worship in most of our congregations, and that began well before the movie. It began in 1958 when we used this book. Our hymnals have always contained more than just the songs that we sing in worship, and our organist plays in the more traditional setting. It contains the liturgy, the things that we say and the things that we hear in the front part. The SBH, as it came to be called, served us well for quite a time. In most congregations, 20 years, and some congregations even more. But then, after that period of time, people's eyes began to glaze over. The words didn't make sense to them anymore. It words like thee and thou and stuff like that. And so, a replacement was sought. It would cause great controversy, but a replacement was sought. And the replacement looks like something more familiar to you. It looks like that. That's my copy. It's right here. It's pretty well worn. You can see the spine is failing from the grip of my hand over these many years I've had it. Um, but in order to keep up with the times, the LBW, the Lutheran Book of Worship, was put together. This book made its debut, this one, right after the movie, in 1978. It's been around that long. It's been our, in our hands and its contents have later been projected on our screens for now 43 years and counting. The LBW is, and probably always will be, the longest used hymnal in Lutheran history. And we don't even know what its longevity is going to be yet. 
their record of its use continues, as we know. It's right in the, the seats in front of you. Many who share this time of worship with us today have never known anything but this green hymnal. They weren't born before it came along. And the rest of us, the few of us who were born before 1978, we can scarcely remember using the red one. With this history in mind, it's no wonder that we seem to lapse from consciousness almost when we share our Green Book style of confession as we did this morning. We've heard those words so often that we no longer really even hear them. For many, the LBW's very important words of confession have taken on the sound of an echoey blah, 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 blah. Amen. Take just, just, take just a moment for yourself and evaluate your own involvement in confession that we had just a few minutes ago. Think back. Where was your mind? During that time of confession, it might have crossed your thought that we offered our confession last week. And it's not our normal, uh, our normal rhythm to do it two weeks in a row. We do it when we're going to have communion that week. That was last week. Why are we doing it this week? What is this crazy pastor doing subjecting us to this repetitive boredom? Perhaps it felt a little different to you. Perhaps going through that time of confession was a little bit like picking up that green hymnal with the cross emblazoned on it and doing that. I don't intend to go all the way through confession and, and talk about it word by word by word as we go. You heard the origins of our confessional language, much of it, as Kaya read them for us this morning in our first reading. So you know that what we do in our confession is deeply rooted in the Bible. Truth be told, every bit of the liturgy we share is derived from the Bible. Every bit of it. We don't mention that very often. But that's important. What we do is rooted, grounded, and foundationally supported by God's word in every instance. That said, I want to say a bit about what our confession and God's forgiveness offered to us does for us, in us, and for God's purposes. I think if we're going to have a talk like that, we should start where my emotional center is. We'll start with Martin Luther. Right? Brother Martin famously said that he was himself a beggar. It was legendary that he said that on his deathbed. And by beggar, he meant that we come before God with empty pockets. We have nothing. We have absolutely nothing with which we can go and purchase our salvation. God has created each one of us for a purpose. That purpose is high and it's glorious. And then, with knowing that and realizing that, through our own fault, we have failed to fully realize the Lord's expectations of us. So, much like a beggar, we all come before God and appeal to his gracious nature to forgive all those things we did, which we, which admittedly, deviate from his commandments. And we ask God to forgive those acts of loving kindness we failed to offer to our neighbors. 
when we should have brought the kingdom of God through our own abilities to their lives. We confess week after week that the excuse, I didn't know what they needed, just doesn't fly. When we fail to be attentive to our neighbor's needs, we sin every bit as much as if we stepped over that needy person in the middle of our living room carpet. Thanks be to God that it is in his nature to forgive us for our lapses, to forgive us for our sins. But that being said, we take advantage of God's good nature when we finish our confession, receive the announcement of his forgiveness, technically called the absolution, and then we wipe our hands and we just move on. We move on thinking that we're done, we're done until we have to do the same boring thing next month when communion is scheduled. That's not what is intended. God forgives our sins for a reason, and he does so to further and accomplish his plan. One of the immediate effects of receiving that absolution is that all the weight of our guilt that we carry around is now lifted from our shoulders. God does this for our sake, to be sure. But most importantly, and this is in the words of confession and is important, although we don't pay attention to it much, he forgives us for the sake of his son, Jesus Christ. He does that because it is Jesus who goes to the cross carrying the weight of your sin and mine on his shoulders. Doesn't matter we were born after him. He does it anyway. He takes our sin with that weight to the cross. It's not just his body weight that dies there. It is our weight pushing down on his body that takes his life. So with that weight lifted from you, from me, and from Jesus himself, we are freed. We are freed to move through the rest of our liturgy, through the rest of our worship, with happy and grateful hearts, relieved of that guilt and sin that we carry with us until we enter this place. Confession and forgiveness then set the stage perfectly for the hymns and the songs that we sing. It sets the mood as it should be for the word of God, which is read and interpreted for us. It is the stage upon which our prayers rest. And when the occasion arises, it is the confession that has made us ready to truly enjoy Holy Communion and a baptism. With our guilt washed away, we receive God's goodness in all of these forms with greater understanding and greater appreciation than would be possible if we had been, excuse me, weighted down and distracted with all those previous feelings we had, previous failings having caused them. And then, having enjoyed all of those things, from the confession through the rest of our liturgy, we come to the very end of our service. We come to another boring piece of liturgy, the one that ends our worship. It doesn't even have an imaginative name. It's just called the sending. The sending has been said the same way in churches like this, again, from the hymnal, every week since 1978. It's that here we go again moment. Peace.
Sending, the sending. Go in peace and serve the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. It's another piece of liturgy that we just don't hear. We at least we don't hear its meaning anymore. Consider this: confession and forgiveness at one end, and the sending at the other. Bracket our worship. They act in a way as bookends. And, and bookends, as you know, connect one, uh, things that lie between them. So first we're signaled to come in and, and receive the word of God as we cleanse our hearts. And then we're sent out to do God's will as our time here in this room is, is concluded. That's what bookends do. They hold together all those things that happen in between them. But those last few words we share every, every week... Go in peace and serve the Lord. They have deep meaning. Deeper meaning than the English perhaps conveys to us. Having come before God as beggars with empty pockets and deep regrets, we have been forgiven as God's beloved children. And then we have our proverbial pockets filled up, filled up with his loving word. Finally, we're sent out from our time together in the words in English that read, in peace. This peace in the Hebrew is shalom. It's the shalom of God. Shalom is a sense of well-being. It's a sense of mutual support, each of us for the other. Having served God by offering our praise and thanksgiving in all the ways we do in the course of our worship in this room, we are reminded to go back out into the world to love our neighbor as Jesus taught us. That which we do here publicly during our time in this place is repeated when we go out there, in a sense. This shalom, this peace, is very different from the Merriam-Webster definition of peace being the absence of war. The shalom of God is instead a way of life. It makes the heavenly kingdom known to the world through the actions and the words that we take out there. And the shalom of God actively works for the well-being of those people we know and for the well-being of those people we should know. God's shalom knows no boundaries. Shalom never asks, who's my neighbor? Shalom brings peace and well-being from each and every one of us to all of us. And the us in this, in this sentence is every person created in the image of God. So then, we've confessed, we've been nurtured in the ways, we have received God's word, and finally, we've been sent out into the world. That's the function of liturgy. And the follow-up question is, so what? Or, now what? Are we done with God's stuff until we come back next week and do it all again in the same boring fashion? Absolutely not. When we are sent out to serve the Lord, the implication is, of course, 
that our worship continues, as I said before. Serve the Lord here, serve the Lord there. Everything that we do following our sending from worship is, in itself, a worshipful act. All that we do, all that we say, our relationship with every person, all of it, all of those things are meant to glorify God, just as our worship in this room does. That's what worship does no matter where it's located. Glorify God. We must hold on to that understanding. That takes the boredom out of all of it. So, when we leave this sanctuary, what does our worship out there look like? What form does it take? Well, we heard our Savior say in today's Gospel reading that, who, in Jesus' words, whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. From this we are commanded, hear that word, not an option, we are commanded to follow Jesus, to go to the places where he does go, where he always has gone. And when we do the same, he will know us as someone who serves him. We've heard these familiar words from scripture many times. Pastors choose them again and again when it's their option. But what does it mean to you? What does it mean to me? What does it mean to the living of our daily lives? Consider the examples that we've seen before us in just recent days. Our mission and service team alert us time and time again to the needs of our neighbors. Those neighbors live in our own community or on the other side of the globe. And you ask, isn't it enough to drop a contribution of goods in the collection box or, or write a check to advance the ministry selected for us to support every month? Isn't it enough to just do as the committee asks? Can't I just drop off some tuna once in a while? And the answer is, no, no. Our responses to give money and or goods are certainly in keeping with God's will. And our giving response is a holy endeavor. In other words, these things that our mission and services committee exhorts us to do are good places to start. And we should start. We can't go anywhere if we don't start. However, shalom is not achieved by an occasional shopping trip or a whole case of tuna or the size of the check you happen to write. Not at all. Shalom is realized when a faith community like this one takes a caring, giving attitude out into the world you see through those windows and does it continuously over and over again. So, some examples of how shalom out there might look in your life. Well, if you've been blessed with longevity, but you don't have the energy that you once had earlier in your life, consider being a foster grandparent. Just an idea among many. Many of our young families live a great distance from their natural grandparents, and moms and dads need a little time to themselves to nurture their marriage. A stand-in grandparent who would allow them a chance to go out a night here or a night there would be a blessing of shalom to that family, an important act. If you're a very young person, if you're school age, you might think that there's very little of value that you can do. You would be wrong. There are older people living in your neighborhood who might appreciate some help around their homes. 
It may sound boring, may sound repetitive, but imagine helping those older people by pulling some weeds in their yard or rolling garbage container out to the curb to them for them once a week or helping with some light housework if they need the help. It may not sound like much fun, but this is living as God intends, living in the love of others. These things open the hearts of people, young people included, to true worship, to living true worship out there beyond the plate glass windows. These are things which break down barriers in our community and build a sense of shalom among neighbors. For those of us who are in an age that's in between those two ends, you're neither young nor retired, living a worship-filled life is, of course, for you too. Whatever happened, whatever happened to the idea of helping somebody cross the street, where did that go? Why do we no longer offer to help someone caring to carry their groceries when it's obviously a burden for them? I know. In our time, we've been conditioned to avoid intruding into the lives of others. There's no denying that. But you know, the offer to help someone often is as invaluable and inspiring as doing the act itself. It may even be more important. When you offer your assistance, the other person has the opportunity, they have the freedom to consider your gift of effort and time. And then, if they say yes, well, well and good. Follow through on what you promised. If they say no, honor their decision. Either way, you've offered a caring sense of well-being for the life of that other person. Your offer itself may inspire them to reevaluate their own lives and perhaps come to seek the Lord. And, as even more surprising... There might be somebody over there who saw your offer, who saw your intentions, and is inspired by your act. Inspired enough to inquire, why does that person do that? Why don't I do that, and how can I get that inspiration? And things begin to spread. The sense of shalom grows. Never-ending worship becomes the way of the community the way of shalom. I have one last thought for you to consider this morning. I want you to fill somebody else's shoes and think about this. How bored would you be if you were in God's place? Think about that. Think about being in God's place as he forgives folks like us over and over and over again. And then he sends us out to live shalom-centered lives week after week after week. Consider, God has done this in hundreds of thousands of churches. He's done it for millions and millions of people, week after week, for thousands of years. And yet, God persists. Know this through all of that. The Lord is not bored. He is not. God never tires, the Bible tells us, from this never-ending mission to bring true peace, true shalom to his creation and to all the people in whom he has breathed life. As people created in his image, and that's who you are, 
You are created in the image of God. Shouldn't we respond to his continued offer of forgiveness to us, which brings peace into our lives, by going out into the world as his image and doing as his image has shown us? To offer forgiveness and peace there as God has offered forgiveness and peace to us here. Our response, given this understanding as people made in the image of God, ought to be anything but boring and repetitive. You, every one of you, and I, and everyone we meet, all of us, we, when we come to worship, have been made ready and commissioned to do the work of God by God himself. So, sisters and brothers, in the name of the Lord, let's go do it. Amen.